but you ultimately have to listen to yourself and find the ways that you feel like it makes your life make sense. Education is very clear, right? But in general, how can we do that in the field? Theatre is the only art form where we keep adding people to the process. That the form itself is actually automatically inclusive. Hello, and welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast, sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom are the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts. They are relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil. ClearCom brings seamless communication solutions to your stage. The Theatre Art Life podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Kat Landry. In these next few episodes, we are recording in collaboration with our fellow podcaster and now friend, Ethan from Artistic Finance. Today, we are talking with Jeanette Oisuk Yu. Jeanette is an award-winning designer for theatre, opera, dance, musical performances, installation, and immersive experiences. As a designer, she aims to create a visual environment that is organically integrated into the landscape and language of the production. Her works have been seen across US cities and internationally at Havana, Prague, Lima, Edinburgh, Tokyo, Graz, Shanghai, Paris, and Bloemfontein in South Africa. Jeanette is also the Assistant Arts Professor and Head of Lighting Design Training with NYU's Department of Drama, Production and Design Studio, member of the Woodshed Collective and Kaboka, member of USA 29, a recipient of the NEA TCG Career Development Program. Jeanette, welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, actually, I've been, uh, I've been promoted to an Associate Professor. Uh, wow, congratulations. This last year. So, yeah. So Fantastic. now I'm an Associate. Yeah, amazing. These academic titles. They're great. They're fantastic. I love the people who work in the industry and also educate for it. It's it's it's, it's a wonderful combination. So I wanted to start okay. we want to start um tell us how and what was the path that got you into lighting design? Oh, I have a super windy path uh, actually. I um uh first of all, I was born in Detroit. But then I went back to Hong Kong when I was like four years old. So I mostly grew up in Hong Kong. I stayed in Hong Kong until college time and then come to, um, to the States. And, um, and I think that that contributed to part of what I'm doing today because my grandparents are also filmmaker and film directors and, and actors. In the, um, they were not active in the field by the time I was uh, along. Um, and, but my Parents, my mom especially, is very bring us to go see, bring me and my younger brother to go see a lot of um, foreign film, particularly, and a lot of like the only repertory company in um, Hong Kong because Hong Kong is not at the time when I was growing up known to be a big um, theater arts center. But I remember seeing Waiting for Ghetto when I was twelve years old. Have no idea what it was about. I just remember that the energy that was in the room where everybody like kind of in the room together. Um, and that was like something that sort of stick with me. And so by the time I went into college, I, I was double majoring in theater arts at University of Washington. And also I um, was studying business administration with a focus in accounting. Um, I um, finished all my business degree a requirement and someone offered me a job. And so I thought, hey, a job, you know, no student loan. Awesome. So I took the job and I never finished my theater arts. Um, portion of the degree 
uh, because I will have to stay another year. Um, so then I started you know, just being an accountant. I work, I don't do uh, taxes. I do uh, what we call, I focus on manufacturing process. So um, what I do is like basically figuring out how much something is cost from raw material to finished goods. So part of my job is actually having to talk to a lot of different people and understand their process, which also in hindsight turned out to be a really great and important skill to be a theater designer because you also are talking to a lot of different people all the time. Um, so then I eventually got really bored with like a day job, a normal day job. Uh, then I volunteered um, at the time in Seattle, there was like a really big fringe theater scene. So I volunteered and then eventually I just didn't want to live life within what if. So I went back to grad school. I also think that people who went to school in theater and finish it must have special knowledge about theater that I did not know. So I thought, hey, I will go back to school and learn those things. Of course, there's actually no such things. Um, <laughs> I also happened to, you know, I also happened to went to Cal Arts, uh, to go to Cal Arts, which is also like the, the other, like a pretty extreme spectrum in like learning theater. So then I came to New York and then kind of like the rest is history. Like I just, I got a degree from CalArts, uh, MFA in theater design. And then I came to New York because of a Hemsley internship um, that I got, which was a super great introduction for me to be in the city. And then, then I, like, you know, since 2007, six, that I did this mm. in New York. Amazing. Why, why lighting and not another theatrical discipline? I, when I started volunteering, I tried out a bunch of different things. Um, I, realizing I did a show at Stage Manager and don't want to be a Stage Manager, tremendous respect for them, but I can't do the job. <laughs> and it's, it's a hard job. I was like, oh, that's really not for me. Um, I, and then I did a bunch of different stuff. And I landed in lighting because um, I like how I'm using the same material. I don't like in set and in costume, there's always uh, a need for, even when you recycle something, you're still sort of gathering new stuff, you know? And I don't mean it new as in just purchasing, but just like you have to get a lot of stuff in general. Uh, whereas with light design, it's like always the same light, almost. And then you just think about how to use that, you know, where to place it, you know what color you put in it so they're just like i just like that idea of like you just thinking about using the same thing and be creative with the thing that you have that's so interesting that's really interesting yeah i've never thought about the light itself being the material but it really is isn't it and you do have that consistency from project to project and the difference is just how you choose to use it that's a very interesting way of putting yeah. it yeah and I'm also a terrible carpenter. So. <laughs> <laughs> Go where your strengths are. Go where your strengths are. Speaking of yeah. where your strengths are, what was the transition like for you professionally going from more of an accounting business world um, and, and diving full on into uh, the entertainment world? What's, how do you play to your strengths in both of those environments? The thing that I think I'm attracted to doing uh, theater ultimately is that it is ultimately a form where it requires the idea that you just add people to the process it, in the goal to make a better, I don't want to use the word product because then it sounds a little funny, you know, in, 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 the, in the 
economic way, but I do mean that like an end result, a a presentation that is that you believe will be the best way to connect with humanity. And that idea of working with humans have always been the thing that I think that ultimately makes me very curious and interested in spending energy because humans are fascinating uh, creatures. And how to get human to work together is interesting. Um, so I think that in the business world, because of what I what I did, which is focusing on manufacturing, I was ending up having to intersect with a bunch of people who are, you know, some some of the manager, the factory manager at the time was like four times my age, and having to find ways to then communicate with them with what my goal as a cost accountant is or what they are as a plant manager is to try to come up with like a solution and the part like and theater is basically a series of problem solving and and so in that sense that has always been something I'm interested in like I chose to not be a tax accountant because I actually like that process of like learning about all these different things and talking to different people and in theater there was like a similar vein where Every project, I'm learning something new because of the demand of the project and working with a bunch of people who are also have many different backgrounds or interests that we're all trying to steer something together. So I think that both of those things, and I, at the starting at a very young age, in teenage years, I was involved with social services and, and, and do summer events that where we form little leadership groups. So I feel like that I've always been engaging in this energy of like trying to get a bunch of people to do something together, you know? So that's, I think that that's translatable, related to one another. In another sense too, I want to ask, does that kind of accounting aspect of your previous job, did that play into your business side of of being a lighting designer and and have you been able to stay sort of um, sustainable as a lighting designer from a business perspective? And has, has your past experience helped that? I think that it, gives, it, it helps me. Well, first of all, I think that it helped me to find jobs, like <laughs> other jobs to sustain. You know, um, like for a while, I used my accounting background to be a finance director. So I, I run a lot of different organizations' books and sort of understand like and do board presentations about where we are finances and stuff like that so that's helpful like practically um i also think that it makes me sort of understand like sort of the infrastructure like the financial infrastructure of how even the production comes together and be able to think about resource in a way that is that is not like a binary because i do think that um i actually when i when i uh, teach i actually emphasize to students about considering the producing aspect of things because again we're trying to get a bunch of people do things together and and we all have slightly we have the same goal of making that end presentation but we also have slightly different reality of goals that we're trying to accomplish and make it happen and i think that it is important that being able to understand that portion of things uh has been helpful in making work and for my own personal life it's just helpful in terms of like I can like make my do my own taxes. I can understand how to deduct something. Like you know, like that's also super helpful. Absolutely, in a way. (laughs) Definitely. Along that same vein, do you have any financial advice for people who are beginning careers in lighting design? 
it's interesting. I've been thinking about that question quite a bit because I think that the pandemic has also changed a lot of things. And there's also a lot of conversation right now about, like, for example, free internship is like really on the being on the target right now about like no one should do anything for free. And because of the financial reality of like of of living, it's just it's costly, particularly depending on which city you're in. I actually think that the only advice I really have, I thought about this like really a lot, is that you have to pick the things that that makes you happy. So like I can speak from my own personal perspective, is that it is important for me to, even when I was a finance director, using my financial skill, it is important for me to stay in doing something arts related. And by doing so, that particular financial market does not provide like, you know, like 125 grand a year for you to do things, right? It just isn't that kind of a financial market. So then I understand that. And so that means that I have to make lifestyle choices that I, I feel like I can function within it. And that's not the same for everyone. Like I have met another person who told, uh, who told us one time that he decided that it, he's a director and he ultimately decided that I really only want to do the work that I made and I care about. And so in order to live, he decided that I'm going to get a really, really like non-demanding mental job making photocopies in an office during the day. So that at night, I can spend all my mental and creative energy to do the things that I care about. And so they make that financial choice for themselves. And I think that the most important thing for young people, advice I have, is like, it may take you a little time to find that balance, but you ultimately have to listen to yourself and find the ways that you feel like it makes your life make sense. In the old days, there was a lot of, uh, particularly in lane design, there was a lot of things about how don't be electrician if you want to design and don't do this and don't do that. I just think that those things doesn't exist anymore and you have to you have to find the, the way that makes sense to you. And it will change. It may change a year or two after you graduate and then may change like five years later. Mm. I really, really, really like that advice, Jeanette, because I think a lot of the times people are saying, well, ask for more money, ask for, for more money if, if you feel you deserve it. But sometimes you do want to just take a project as an artist because it feeds you, right, more than the monetary compensation. And and therefore to f- remain, to feel fulfilled. I know when I freelanced a long time ago in Australia, I would do some corporate jobs to pay the rent and then I'd go and do the theatre jobs that made me feel good about what I was doing and that for a good period of time was a nice balance. And we often don't think about it, that we, the, the, the industry is not necessarily a linear trajectory, but your reference to a messy path towards lighting design is is one that a lot of people have. It's it's not a it's not a linear trajectory in our industry. Would you agree? Like you don't go from course to rigging lights to then designing lights to you know, it doesn't go like that, right? No, and I also think that the industry have many, many, many different facets and like and life also have many, many different facets. You know, it's it's like you know, the stuff that I did in my 20s are definitely things that I now wouldn't do. Like now I would not like, will, I would not be willing to couch surf for a project, for example. That I, like I would, you know, but when I was like, but when I was like 20, that was awesome. That was like, I get to meet all these different people, go to different cities. Like, I think that, I think that ultimately you need to, it's developing how you, how to make sense for yourself. And I think that that's actually the hardest thing for young people. Um, because there's so many advice and so many 
things that happen in the industry. And 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 some of them are, are obviously we know is bad. Like there are abuses. There are situations that is like really unsafe and unhealthy. But how to develop a sense for yourself so that you 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 know I say to my student that that you know why you make that decision. And that's I think the most important thing that you can have. No, that's really, really interesting. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by Clearcom. Clearcom is the leader in voice communications for theatre and the performing arts, relied upon from the Broadway stage to the West End to Cirque du Soleil, bringing seamless communication solutions to your stage. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. And so in your lighting career, you've also done projection and these these sort of mediums are actually kind of merging now too a lot of people do lighting and content and and they always have to work hand in hand and so do you take projects that incorporate both or do you work on one and the other how does that work in your career uh it depends on the collaborators uh i have a long time collaborators um aya ogawa that we worked together for many many years in in um, her show, I often do both lighting and projection because we have a long development process. I recently just did a show that I did do both, but the projection was a emerge out of a design conversation, and I know the scope, and so it was it was more limited scope and a very specific scope. So I did do both, but generally I don't try to do both because they both have a very similar when you're in tech. They have a similar process that is hard to like simultaneously, you know, because the time is the same. They don't give you more time. And so, you know, so that gets that gets complicated. And, and, be, and, and the scale of the show that I'm doing currently in my life generally makes it much, much more of a challenge. So I don't generally do both. And you do a lot of work, um, you've done a lot of work in, in multiple countries like Prague, Lima, Edinburgh. How, how has your international career developed and evolved? Um, most of them are related to shows that uh, is in the U.S. and then all collaborators in the U.S. that are also international. So like with Lima, um, I was um, the director. She is from Peru and so we went over there to do a show there. In some of the other shows like Tokyo, it was actually with a traditional Japanese puppeteer uh, and an American puppeteer collaboration. And so we went to Tokyo to tour around, actually did something in not just in Tokyo, but also in some other city in Japan also. So it's related to the collaborators and the projects in the U.S. That's very interesting. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience with puppetry? I started out, so when I was in University of Washington, uh, studying theaters, getting a theater degree, they have someone, um, uh, Aurora Valentini, um, she uh, is, has been teaching there. And they, in University of Washington, they have a little bit of an overlap between training you to be a professional artist in theater, but also like h- how to sort of use theater arts as an educational tool. And so puppetry sort of fall in that. And, and her class is actually a required class. There's like one class called Introduction to Puppetry that is required. And at the time, she was already teaching there for like 30 years. So she's been teaching there for a long time. And she's a puppeteer, Italian-American immigrant puppeteer. Uh, she always, you know, really, that's her identity. And so I took a class with her and just find it fascinating, this idea of uh, animating, bringing object to life. Um, so then fast forward, 
a bunch of years later, while I was also freelancing, I basically quit my full time corporate job eventually and like freelance and do sort of financial work part time. Um, I was teaching, um, asked to be an artist in residence, and so I used puppetry as a way to integrate. At the time, you have to. There's no art for art's sake in public school at the time, and so you have to integrate the art into a curriculum. So then I used puppetry to integrate with science curriculum, social studies curriculum, uh, and and then I by by chance I went to Cal Arts and um, Jane Geiser and Susan Simpson had a puppetry program there, and they are more they are very much like an experimental uh, puppetry world. And so I basically um, also continue to study and make work there with them. And then that's kind of how I enter into like a different vortex of puppetry area, basically. That is really cool. I love the way you use it as an educational tool for so many things and not just for theater arts, but kind of across the board. No, and I was going to also say that my work in it is also have evolved, like, like now my work have become very contemporary and very um, experimental in both aesthetic and in, I usually blend technology when you were speaking about projection. I also use a lot of projection and, and digital technology in puppetry work because I want, I actually, my work have evolved into, I want to really experiment with what actually puppetry, what considered to be puppetry in a, in a, in, in a way. And I, I don't design puppets for people. I uh, for shows. Um, my puppetry work is all work that I have generated and I make and I sort of devise and create from the beginning. That is really cool. You you mentioned a moment ago um, about the moment that you took the plunge and left your corporate job to freelance as your main source of income, and you were just doing corporate gigs kind of on the side, it sounds like, temporary, uh, part-time. What was that transition like for you? How did you know it was time to jump into being an artist full-time? I didn't want to live with regret. That was actually the main, I didn't, I didn't want to be the, you know, I, it, I described that I didn't want to be like 80 years old in a, in a rocking chair looking out the window wondering, what happened if I did something different? And, you know, I figured that I will um, either go to know or, you know, one way or another and figure out something else. Now, there's also, of course, the hubris of being young. Like, I also want to acknowledge that. Like, you know, it's, uh, you know, and again, that was a choice that I made for myself. You know, and it took me like a couple of years before I went back to grad school. I was not the kind of person that jumped right from undergrad into grad school. It took me like three, four years to sort of figure that out. And, um, you know, so I just, I didn't, I, uh, I don't want to live life with that question. It's a good philosophy, especially as you, as you teach now as well. What, what was your, what was the methodology or the motivation to go into teaching was you were you asked did you apply to sort of be in that educational realm or how did you incorporate that into your career the one thing uh, I'll start with the funny one the funny one was when I was in uh, as a intern with Hemsley internship in New York City as a lighting intern I discovered that I'm horribly bad in organizing paperwork 
And so I just know that I could not possibly be an assistant. I cannot do that to make a living. So that was kind of like one aspect of how traditionally lighting designer make a living. So that's quick, very quickly. I know that if I need to have a diff, like side job, something to support my artistic endeavor, I need that is not a thing. Uh, but the but 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 the real thing is that I actually really love teaching. Um, as I mentioned, I teach even when I was back in Seattle. Seattle is where I, you know, started out, and uh, when I'm freelancing, is because I think that it it forces me to constantly have to think about why I do something. And it makes me forces me to process, and how, and I truly believe I teach, I teach exactly as how I do my work. I don't have a different uh, approach or different philosophy when it comes to teaching. I am exactly how I believe in how I do my work, and I think that it really forces me to to think about it. And I learn a lot also from my students. Just like what their point of view is like, what is important to them, you know. And I think that now, in the last, particularly since the pandemic, I am more active in the field in terms of thinking about um, um, all the inclusion, diversity, and belonging uh, topics, too. So I think that being constantly able to engage with young younger people is important um, to my own ethos as an as a as a art maker. And how have you incorporated diversity and inclusion into your teaching? I try. We pi- I pi- piloted a class called Building an Inclusive Practice um, last semester at NYU. Um, that was the first try of the class. So obviously there was like a lot of things that didn't work and then a lot of things that some things did work. I am curious about how particularly um, for young um, uh, students, uh, young people, how to actually, I believe that inclusion is actually an ethos. Uh, it's an entire ethos. It's not, it's not a, a, just an act of hiring a certain people. Um, because because how, how do we move beyond just representation? You know? Now, of course, in my own practice, I try to make sure that when I, when I have opportunity, I try to look at like, how can I like, expand my, my opportunities not to just like the, the one or two people that I know. Right. That's, you know, that's, of course, in the act that I'm doing. But I do think that how do you work with people continuously to to have that inclusive mindset, um, how to listen, how to ask questions, know when to not ask questions, like all those things, I think, is, is part of that ethos. And so I'm interested in how I'm interested in what we can do in the field to um, Education is very clear, right? But in general, how can we do that in the field to really develop that idea? Such an interesting question. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. Yeah, we that's it would be interesting to like you said to the 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 class that you ran was a pilot and um those things that worked and things that were didn't and I think that that one of the things that everybody's trying to work out is the pathway to to make it a reality, right? And things take time to change and that's that doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything but also it's also to be patient to figure out the path for it to be a normal a normality in the industry it is also interesting that in the class i started out the class by saying that 
ultimately, by going back to the idea that theater is the only art form where we keep adding people to the process, that the form itself is actually automatically inclusive. You know, and like it, like fundamentally, philosophically speaking, we somehow believe that it is an inclusive act. You know, it's just that in our day to day of making it happen, because we all have, you know, our own sort of focus and ideas and stuff like that. That somehow, like, it's interesting to me how it just also become like a separate subject matter. So the question is like, this is also why I like the idea of building an ethos because then it is like what you actually also practice. It's like a yoga practice, right? Certainly, you can sign up for a class for forty five minutes and do yoga. But we all know that to be good at to be like really good at yoga, you really need to have it into like a conscious practice. You bring up a really interesting point as well in the hiring process. How we tend to stick to those that we know and those that we've worked with before, and so sometimes it's easy to get into that habit of bringing on the same one or two people、uh, that are already kind of in your circle. Have you found any strategies for kind of building out that pool of of people that you're considering for roles,、um, so that you can actually be more inclusive? Again, not just in the hiring process, but moving forward through the whole creation process as well. How do you start? Well, I think that bef- before I talk about what I personally do per se, but I I would say that it's also going back to the very beginning of this conversation when the question was like, does your business background help? How does it relate to what you're doing? Is that I do think that there is a organizational structure. That sometimes the reason that we keep going back to the one or the two people is honestly like time and resource limitation. Right?、Um, also, right? It's like we all know that it's a fact. The more you work with the same people, the more you have a shorthand. Things get faster, and also things can go deeper. Like I would have to say that, like if I reflect back, with, like fifteen years ago, my my relationship with Aya is a totally different collaborative relationship than we are today. Because we have fifteen years to develop it, you know. So that is like just a human aspect of things. So I I want to make very certain that we don't go back to the same people necessarily because we were like exclusionary, but is that is actually like kind of the structural requirement for us to do our work requires us to to have the same people, right? It's like if you think about in the corporate setting, they don't they don't rotate the employee in and out. They hire the employee and then the employee is there, right? And so, in some way, it's like in that same in that same like model. So the model itself isn't like the problem. the The problem is like then how do you、uh, look at the resource at hand, and then think about how I can incorporate people because this project has the opportunity to incorporate someone that I don't know. For example, you know, is it something that I'm looking for a different skill? Is it something that you know? Like I trust that this person I have worked with for a long time can learn this new skill. However, I may be able to find someone because this project needs a specific skill that already have that skill. Then I can incorporate them and hire them. Is it a project where there are more resources because there is more money that I can hire another person to be in an entry level role and and do this?、Um, is that opportunity that the timeline allow for someone to learn? Like I remember very vividly. I took my students to a focus one time, and there was one electrician who were clearly still learning. And so, when they asked the electrician to go up to focus the light with me,、um, I 
have to take a little more time to explain how things work. And my student was like really shocked, like afterwards. And, you know, I asked them, what did you see? And my student was like, oh my God, how can they pay for someone that don't know what they were doing, right? And, I, and my response to them was like, look, I said that I was not in a hurry. And some like and and lighting lighting particularly is a is kind of work that needs to be very hands on, and you know and it is it it didn't it didn't take away anything from me spending another you know thirty second to a minute, and the and the and this opportunity for that person they have to be able to have avenue to develop their skill, so this idea like this this is where like earlier when we had the conversation about finances. This 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 thing about what well, I must be paid, must be more paid, but the, like sometimes it's like those those jigsaw puzzles isn't fitting together so nicely. So in this case, yeah, this person is getting paid as well as they should, and they don't have all the knowledge, you know. But in but in the field, there's a little bit of like, well, I pay you, right? And so so there's like that. This this is where the perspective of my student comes in, and. You know, and in those cases, I, I'm happy to work with younger, younger, inexperienced people because I'm also not really in a hurry. So that's an opportunity to incorporate this person learning, and it's fine. Some other situation, if I have like a day and a half, that's a different conversation, right? So I think it needs to be evaluated on each case by case basis of how I can grow my team and how to work with people who may have less experience. In this particular moment in time, and hopefully in partnership with your producing and your directorial team, so that you being able to do all these things. Yeah, it's such a good point, and also because, like you said earlier, you're always bringing people together to create something, and th- and there's opportunity and space for new people to come into that web of a team. Um, every time you create a show, right? Like there's there's multiple levels and layers where you could choose the opportunity to pull somebody in. And even on a fast show, if there's somebody who's got strong mentorship and guidance, it doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means there's there's got to be a consciousness behind it, right? Like there's got to be a, a, a consciousness of those choices as a team and from a holistic perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing. Well, we always uh, finish our podcasts, uh, Jeanette, with the two of the same questions, so we're going to ask them now. What's your most favourite thing about the jo- your job or the industry? generally um i think get to just learn something new get to learn something new get to meet new people you know i can i can sound like a fake scholar because i've worked on shows you know about the universe to like microbiology (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing (laughs) that's great and if there were one thing that you could change about your job or about the industry as a whole what would it be what would I change? Um, I wish <laughs> scheduling. I think it's like um, scheduling. How it, it's like there were so many times that I was going like, okay, I am free on Tuesday and Thursday. Why does everything have to happen on Wednesday? Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like I don't know. I mean, I think schedule. Like, how do how do how do we work at a schedule that makes sense? You know, and in every step of the way. You know, uh, I do also have one thing, too, that I will add to that. It's like I say to my student all the time, this is the thing. I said that we should change tech, the work tech rehearsal, to rehearsal with more stuff. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, because I think that, like, if we change that term, 
like we will approach tech in a very different way. I think that there was a sense that somehow like tech have this like pressure of like, oh my God, we have to put everything together. You know, it's like, no, we're just rehearsing with more stuff. <laughs> I'm going to start using that. <laughs> I am, I'm totally going to use that. I've got to go back into our, our tech with more stuff tomorrow week. and I'm going to say that. <laughs> we're just rehearsing with more stuff. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's really it. We just now have more stuff. Like, it's you true. know, it's no different. It's true. She's right. That's it. You know? I love that. And it also sets the tone of like, you know, there's always that divide of like, well, the creative time, the creative time. Now we've got to bring the tech time in, right? And it's like, no, it's a whole creative process and, and it's just adding to rather than giving time to other people to do their thing. It's 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 part of the process. Yeah. It's just, you know, yeah. rehearsing with more stuff. I love it. It's if definitely I can a takeaway. That. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've you've got me in, you've got me in me in Saudi Arabia and Kat in Tokyo to take that phrase forward. So you've 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 started the mission. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've been. It's on my mission. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wonderful, Jeanette. Thank you so much for your time on the Theatre Art Life podcast. We really truly appreciate it. And it was lovely to hear about your work and career. Yeah, and lovely to meet you guys. I hope there was like other opportunity in the future. Absolutely. I'd love to meet you in person if we get back to uh, the States. Well, Kat's from the I'm States. I'm from there. I'm sure we can meet up one so. of these days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would be lovely. That would be lovely. That would be great. It was so nice to have you, Jeanette. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only $38 US per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.